Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like avocados, pigeons and praise. Or, Sam, wait for this, prunes, runes and pantaloons, swoons, moons and spoons. In fact, spoons is something that I've wanted to research for a long time, along with with the history of moons. (laughs) We've sort of did that, we touched on that with the history of the bottom uh, but that's all, a completely that, different sort of thing. It is. Mooning rather than rather than the moon up in the sky. That's true. Out of all that, I'd like to do praise and spoons. I Ooh. think we should do those next. They're very, very good. Pigeons would be good as well. I, I don't know how I would start with avocados. <laughs> um, but, you know, well, let's, let's, let's jot those down. However, in the meantime, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining... How those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam Willis, that the history of reading is in fact all about Renaissance book wheels, medieval reading aloud, Bibles, sending letters and the concept of privacy. It's about reading glasses, secrecy and codes. And of course, it's all about snooping. Or that the history of contempt is in fact all about William McMahon and Australian politics, courtesy of a superstar listener in Australia who sent us that idea. It's also about 18th century rebukes, facial expressions, unrequited love, William Shakespeare and Sir Philip Sidney. Who knew, Sam? Very good. You're probably wondering who this man doing the introducing is. Let me tell you that if he is... He is the drawer full of rusty spanners of history. He's the man whose historical shed would be immaculately swept with not a spider of bias lurking in the corners of falsehoods. He's the tomato feed that nurtures the fruity past, the screed de-icer that removes the chilly crust of inaccuracy and the white spirit of the past itself. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Oh, hello, Sam. And do you know what I've done? I've forgotten to write an introduction for you. However, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping me co-pilot these episodes? Well, let's just say that if he were a shed-related historian, off the top of my head, I would say he would be an amazing historical writer who 
squirrelled himself away at the bottom of his garden in a self-erected shed to cocoon himself in a world of historical fact and brilliance and creativity. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. That wasn't bad, just off the top of my, off the top of my head. Yeah, very good. Bless Very you. good indeed. Um, guys, we're doing sheds today. It's something that we've been wanting to do for a while. Um, I, I work in a shed. I have a shed, not even at the bottom of my garden. It's halfway down my garden on the right-hand side uh, where I work. And it's, um, do you know what? I, I, I haven't really noticed the state of my shed until I went to interview a bloke's day for a different podcast. And he, <laughs> he, he, he lives and works in the most wonderful, um, wonderfully organised, beautiful, high-ceilinged study. And um, my shed felt pretty, pretty poor. Uh, having experienced that. Um, James, any other reasons you wanted to do sheds? Well, the reason I wanted to do a shed is that I've just had a new shed delivered. And at the moment, I'm actually covered in paint. Uh, you can't see it over the airwaves, but uh, I'm covered in paint because I've been I've been painting it a rather nice stone grey colour. Uh, so this got me thinking all about sheds. And, you know, I'm thinking about all the different kinds of sheds that one can one could think about, the different sort of uses that one might make of a shed, whether it be a bicycle shed, a boat shed, a garden shed, railway sheds, tool sheds, wood sheds, all sorts of things uh, like that, activities associated with them, whether they are practical. There's also the gendering of sheds. You know, sheds are often seen as a, as a male domain. It's where men sort of you know, hide themselves away doing, you know, doing uh, DIY and chores like that. They're associated with gardening. Um, you know, it's a slightly sort of nerdy thing to sort of go off and locate yourself in a shed. But in the from the 1980s onwards, the, the men's sheds groups uh, set up in, in Australia were a sort of community organisation to get men together uh, doing sort of hobbies and various things to tackle uh, what they saw as problems in in well-being and health among the sort of more elderly male generations in Australia, and I'll be talking a little bit about that. But but those are those are a few of my a few of my initial thoughts, Sam. Yeah, I like the the, the I like the fact that they're temporary structures. Right? Yes, and if you have temporary structures, there's a whole history of temporary structures in uh, in the past and particularly I've always been interested in how they do or they don't leave a trace in the archaeological record so you know you might have a fairly substantial shed which will actually you know made of timber no significant foundations and once it's gone down maybe the timber's been stolen and repurposed one way or another it doesn't exist anymore um, and it's quite difficult to actually see where buildings like that have existed it's a real challenge for archaeologists so I, I particularly like seeing sheds which are kind of like on their way to, to, to not being there. They're like half there and not half there. There's an allotment near me, which has got a cracker of a, of a wonky shed in it. And I've always wanted to go in to see if there's any evidence of human habitation left. Um, and I say all this because there, is, uh, there are a couple of, of fishing huts, uh, which are definitely sheds, which I've been to recently. One up um, in Northumberland on a river called the North Tyne, just above Hexham by Hadrian's Wall, very beautiful. And um, another in Hampshire, near a chalk stream, uh, in the beautiful, beautiful part of Hampshire. And they're both, they, they share the interesting fact that the, those who have been there and spent time there have written on the walls. Uh, and graffiti is one of our favourite subjects, James, and I think I might have talked about this before. But the one in Hampshire, by the chalk stream there, has been signed by soldiers on leave 
during the First World War. And they've, what they've done is they've returned from France. And they've come to this little chalk stream to try and catch a few trout. Um, it's a sort of beautiful moment of stillness, of uh, kind of keeping calm and carrying on, of making you realise that the world was normal while everyone else was 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 chewing lumps out of each other in northern France. So fishing huts was something that I thought about. Um, but I then went on to, uh, to explore various other, various other aspects and uh, came across what you mentioned at the beginning, James, of people writing in sheds. Did you come across sh other shed writers? I did, and I was going to talk a little bit about shed writers, um, mm. including uh, Henry Williamson of Tark of the Otter fame, uh, oh. who, who, when he won uh, a prize for this important work... Um, he built a shed um, and then lived in it in North Devon uh, in a place called Georgium, uh, Oxford Cross. And he sort of wrote many of his most enduring and famous, famous works in it. But I think sheds have been used for retreat and seclusion and by writers throughout history. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well. Mark, do you want to start with that? I'm quite happy to, yes. So I want to tell you all about Henry Williamson's writing hut. Um, it was built uh, in 1929 to 30. And as I said, it is he built it with the prize money uh, from uh, his award-winning novel, Tark of the Otter, uh, which was published in 1927. And he, um, it's now a grade two uh, listed building, so English Heritage have have um, done all sorts of research about it. If you go to their website, you can find out all about this. But throughout his life, he seems to have sort of moved around the country quite a bit, um, uh, but always returned to North Devon. And he brings his his family, his second family, back to uh, back to North Devon. And in fact, while he's living in the shed, uh, he builds a house next door for them to be in, uh, and they're basically living in a field. Uh, and then he moves them to a sort of nearby nearby town because it, he has a new new child. Uh, a, a baby is born in 1949 and it's thought that um, it, it isn't really an appropriate place for him to bring up such children. So the family goes off to live in Ulfracum and he continues sort of on a daily basis coming to his shed to write it. And as I said, many of his most famous works were, were made here. Uh, it's a simple single story hut uh, with what is described as wany edge cladding, um, it's made of, um, of made of, of wood um, and and has a an entrance door with a little peephole and decorative metal straps. Um, and it is, you know, it you can imagine that it would have been a wonderful place in which to in which to write. Um, but the, all sorts of writers throughout history have had you know, secret places where they have, you know, written. Most famously, uh, to my mind, is somebody like Roald Dahl, um, who famously uh, wrote in a small writing hut in Great Missenden in Buckinghamshire. And this is where he made, wrote many of his most famous stories and books. Um, and it was, in fact, a very small place um, with a small chair, and I remember as a child seeing pictures of him in his in his armchair with a big waste paper basket by the side of him. Pictures on the walls and an angle poise lamp lighting um, what was a lap desk that he had across 
his armchair and he would write out longhand all of his notes there. And, you know, getting getting on a bit uh, and quite chilly in the shed, he had a big uh, tartan blanket uh, that covered him. Um, and he, 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 he writes in, um, in Roald Dahl from Inside Out, the author speaks, when I am up here, I see only the paper I'm writing on and my mind is far away with Willy Wonka or James or Mr Fox or Danny or whatever else I'm trying to cook up. The room itself is of no consequence. It is out of focus, a place for dreaming and floating and whistling in the wind, as soft and silent and murky as a womb. So that connects us to this idea of the shed as a place of creativity, of seclusion, of imagination where one can take oneself away from the daily tasks of everyday life, the humdrum monotony of chores and can actually concentrate on the art of writing. And this is something that I battle with all the time and battled with during lockdown in a very busy house. Where does one go to write, you know, privately and in, in seclusion, you know, by oneself? But Roald Dahl was really inspired by another great writer, the Welsh writer Dylan Thomas. And Thomas's shed uh, was what really inspired Roald Dahl. And in the 1950s, uh, Roald Dahl visits Dylan Thomas in his shed. Um, and the Welsh poet had been uh, written for a long time, his poetry in a, a small writing hut in Carmarthenshire, which was near his, near his home. And it was, it was on the cliffs overlooking uh, the, the estuary. Um, Roald Dahl goes to visit him and he's so impressed by what he sees that he goes home and takes the dimensions and makes himself exactly the same kind of shed. In a way, you don't want a massive shed because you don't want too many distractions. You want a small place that's just big enough to hold you and some books and a, and a writing desk. So there we are, Stan. There's a, a starter for ten uh, a couple of writers in their sheds, uh, but there are others that I could have talked about. Mark Twain, George Bernard Shaw, um, uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, who mm. in his his Walden or, or Life in the Woods, where he really explores that idea of being off in the in isolation, out separated from society. I think the um, you know Mark Twain. I came across his shed. I mean, you've got Roald Dahl, right? So he's uh, born in nineteen sixteen, died in nineteen ninety. Then a previous generation, Dylan Thomas, as you spoke about, so nineteen fourteen to nineteen fifty three. Then Mark Twain takes us back again, another generation. So he was uh, born in eighteen thirty five and nineteen ten, and he had a slightly more elaborate shed in upstate New York, a very beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And uh, he was sent to the shed because his sister in law was so fed up with him smoking all the time. Um, but rather like uh, Dahl, Twain wrote a little about his shed, which I think is wonderful. It is octagonal in shape with a peaked roof, each space filled with a spacious window, and it sits perched in complete isolation on the very top of an elevation that commands leagues of valleys and city and retreating ranges of distant blue hills. It's a cosy nest and just room in it for a sofa, table and three or four chairs, and when the storms sweep down the remote valley and the lightning flashes behind the hills beyond and the rain beats upon the roof over my head, imagine the luxury of it. On hot days, I spread the study wide open, anchor my papers down with brickbats and write in the midst of the hurricanes, clothed in the same thin linen we make shirts of. 
The study is nearly on the peak of the hill. It is right in front of the little perpendicular wall of rock left where they used to quarry stones. On the peak of the hill is an old arbor, roofed with bark and covered with the vine you call the American Creeper. Its green is almost bloodied with red. The study is 30 yards below the old arbor and 100 yards above the dwelling house. It is remote from all noises. Um, I particularly like that description of Twain um, immersed in nature and um, getting a real sense of the geography of it. And interesting that he went there to, to be isolated himself, but you know, it's not just artists who are going to, to write, even though we've just spoke about them. As a wonderful science, science example, this is Marie Curie, and she didn't go and isolate herself. She went to the shed to isolate radium. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so a uh, Polish um, super, super famous um, uh, artists came from a very uh, famous family, lots of Nobel Prizes. And um, they get to the, the crucial stage where they're trying to isolate radium. And they, they, um, they're trying to do it in her husband's school. Pierre is her husband. Uh, and, and they can't. So they, they, she's provided with um, an, a shed. And so unbelievably, this, this crucial, crucial moment in the history of silence, science, uh, the discovering um, of polonium and radium. Uh, happens in a shed, and uh, she wrote about it. Uh, the School of Physics could give us no suitable premises, but for lack of anything better, the director permitted us to use an abandoned shed which had been in service as a dissecting room of the School of Medicine. Its glass roof did not afford complete shelter against rain, as in it's leaking. I love that. The heat was suffocating in summer, and the bitter cold of winter was only a little lessened by the iron stove, except in its immediate vicinity. There was no question of obtaining the needed proper apparatus in common use by chemists. We simply had some old pine wood tables with furnaces and gas burners. We had to use the adjoining yard for those of our chemical operations that involved producing irritating gases. Even then, the gas often filled our shed. With this equipment, we entered with our exhausting work. But it was in this miserable old shed that we passed the best and happiest years of our lives, devoting our entire days to our work. Often I had to prepare our lunch in the shed so as not to interrupt some particularly important operation. Sometimes I had to spend a whole day mixing a boiling mass with a heavy iron rod nearly as large as myself. I would be broken with fatigue at the day's end. Other days, on the contrary, the work would be a most minute and delicate fractional crystallisation in the effort to concentrate the radium. I was then annoyed by the floating dust of iron and coal from which I could not protect my precious products. But I shall never be able to express the joy of the untroubled quietness of this atmosphere of research and the excitement of actual progress with the confident hope of still better results. The dealing of discouragement that sometimes came after some unsuccessful toil did not last long and gave way to renewed activity. We had happy moments devoted to a quiet discussion of our work, walking around our shed. So James, I've been completely inspired by this. And if you hear anyone poking around your garden in the night, it's going to be me. I'm going to break into your garden and I'm going to isolate radium in your shed. Bless you. That's very kind, Sam. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. <laughs> I will be forever associated with scientific discovery. Your glowing shed. Now, I have a question for you. Um, yeah. Do you have trouble with sunlight coming into your shed? Either a lack of it or too much sunlight? Yeah, I do. I do, I do. So oh. I think my, my shed faces west. I, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a proper knackered kind of nine-foot garden shed. However, I have insulated it and chipboarded it in a very rough and ready way. And I've got some lovely floor-to-ceiling glass windows on one end which fold back. Um, but they also serve to, uh, to cook me when I'm in my shed working on a hot afternoon. But to be fair, given the hours I work, James, that rarely happens because I'm usually all, all done by half 12. You're up early. You're yeah. up early. I have an example from history. The Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw and his rotating shed, uh, which I think could be a solution for your problems, because what he did was he designed a shed that could be easily turned to let the sun in and also to keep the sun out. I think this is very clever. And it's written about in a 1932 report in the um, publication Modern Mechanics, which is never off my off my side table for, for curious reading. Um, and it writes or it says, Mr. Shaw has a plan to keep the sun shining on him constantly while he works. He's constructed a small hut on his grounds that is built on a turntable. When the morning sun shifts, he merely places his shoulder against the side of the hut and gives it a push so that the warming beams fall through his window at the correct angle. Mr Shaw's plan to keep the sun shining on him is a simple health measure and not, <laughs> I love this, and not a wanton eccentricity. <laughs> has spent most of his life out of doors but when he moved to London, he didn't get as much sun as he thought he needed, hence the hut. And this hut is based in a small village of Ayat St. Lawrence in Hertfordshire. And it's on the grounds of one of his main residences. Uh, and it remains intact exactly um, exactly the way uh, that it did when he died in 1950. Uh, and I have a photograph of it in, in front of me. If you Google um, George Bernard Shaw writing hut, uh, you will bring up a picture. And it looks like a very unprepossessing shed. Uh, it has a, a door in the middle, two little windows either side, and uh, the door has a, a window panel in it. 
um, it doesn't look like it would let much much light in at all. It's pleasingly um, symmetrical, but it, um, it is. Yes, has you it have it in else? front of you. I do. Not much else going for it. No, no, and it needs a lick of paint. Uh, I could do a very good job uh, with cuprinol uh, on that. <laughs> I've got my I've got my eye in. I bet you do. I bet you do. Um, one of the the so I mean here we are. We, we've we've talked about some reminiscences of authors, and that's quite easy pickings as a historian. Okay, so if we go to an author who wrote in a shed, and then you can go and find your diary entries, and you can find them. But at some point in their lives, they will probably have written about their shed. Um, so easy pickings for historians, also fairly easy pickings for those interested in material culture and archaeology by going to look at George Bernard Shaw's shed as a great example, and um, a Roald Dahl's shed. Um, can we still see? Or I think there's been a recreation of it at the Roald Dahl Museum. Does that ring a bell? I think so, um, yes. Yeah. So anyway, how else do you do the history of sheds? Well, I've come out up with a, a surprisingly rich source of uh, material for those studying the history of sheds, James. And um, it is, of course, in Hansard, <laughs> ah. which, which, is, which records all of the political debates in Parliament. Now, um, I'm still quite unsure what politicians do in Parliament, apart from grope each other. Well done, Matt Hancock. Um, but I think what they do now is argue about vaccinations. But in the past, James, say at the end of the 19th century or the 20th century, they spent a huge amount of time talking about sheds, a really quite substantial amount of time. Lots of arguments about sheds in Parliament, some very, very entertaining debates. Here's a bit of one here from the 1909 Finance Bill. Right, You've got the Liberal MP for Preston called Harold Cox. He's asked whether the Financial Secretary to the Treasury of the time called Charles Hobbshouse whether he proposed to add to the finance bill a definition of the word building, which seemed to be rather important. And he asks whether the following constituted a building. A weaving shed? This is all rather tongue-in-cheek. I can imagine them all trying not to laugh. A cow shed? A greenhouse? A carpenter's shed? A smithy? And a creamery? And Hobhouse responds. As to what is a building must always be a matter of degree and circumstance. Cox says, can the right honourable gentleman state which is primarily regarded as a building? Hobhouse, no, not possible. That will depend on a certain amount of common sense. Then a Mr Ashley pops up and says, will the right honourable gentleman give us some of his common sense now? And then William Thorne asks whether a monkey house comes under the definition and a William Crooks adds, or a pigsty. So there's a great moment in political history. But you can follow this through. So what this is, I suppose, is it's a, it's a, these particular examples, it's a history of amusing debates in Parliament about sheds. Um, there's another one back, going back a bit further, 1887. Um, and this is all to do with allotments. Okay, it's actually quite interesting. Um, and how it fits into governmental control of allotments and, and sort of self-farming uh, self and people producing their own, um, uh, their own food at the end of the 19th century. So, you know, what actually is an allotment? How big they should be? Are you allowed to live on it? Um, and, you know, what constitutes a small farm? What's the difference between that and an allotment? And all of this was undecided in the 19th century. Uh, the original debate, this is quite lengthy but worth listening to, is between uh, a Mr Seal Hayne of Ashburton and a Mr Long um, uh, from the government. And Mr Seal Hayne wants to insert in the Right Honourable Gentleman's Amendment the words 
stables and cattle sheds. So Seal Hayden wants to have stables and cattle sheds allowed on allotments. And Long replies, the government cannot possibly accept this amendment. I would point out to the honourable member that the only reason he has submitted to the committee for its being adopted is that if an allotment tenant desires to keep a donkey or pony, he should have a place to keep it in. Well, if an allotment holder wishes to have a donkey or pony, he may have it, but it does not follow that he should keep it on his allotment. The most natural thing would be for him to have a stable adjoining his house. I think that as the government have consented to the proposal to allow tool houses, greenhouses, fowl houses and pigsties to be erected on a allotments. That is all which ought properly to be asked of us. We cannot agree to any extension. extension. Seal Hayne then goes, but will the honourable gentleman accept cattle sheds or not? Long. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then Mr Winterbotham, Winterbottom of Sirencester, piles in. Then we are to understand that the allotment holder is to be allowed to keep a pig if he likes, but is not allowed to keep a calf or a cow. By resisting proposals of this kind, the government are practically crippling the bill. I have not taken part in the discussions in committee to any extent because, bad as the bill is, I've been anxious to see it passed into law. I do feel it necessary now to protest against the government of proposing this proposal to allow a man to keep a cattle shed on his holding if he thinks fit. Then Mr Chaplin gets into the, the bones of it. I'm sure that the protest of the Honourable Member is raised in absolute ignorance of this subject. What is an allotment? Ah, it is a small strip of ground separated from another by nothing but a narrow pathway, a few inches broad. I did not propose that stables should be erected on every allotment, says Seal Hayne. And then Chaplin, but the Honourable Member would propose that a stable and cattle shed may be erected if necessary. I'm going to stop there. I could go on for hours and hours. I genuinely think that they spoke for about three hours ranting at each other about um, what could be allowed and what cannot be allowed. And then they really poke at each other because what you've got here is you've got a lot of um, aristocratic, I suppose, conservative MPs, landowners who really haven't got a clue about what they're talking about. And on the other side, you've got um, a lot of pe uh, people representing inner city developments where, you know, having a little strip of, of land allotment in the inner city is really, really important to them. Um, and uh, and it, it's um, a great bit of political theatre uh, played out around what or what is not a shed according to how you've been brought up, essentially, and how you would use it. Um, a, a, a great political tool and a wonderful chapter in the history of British political satire. Excellent. So excellent. Excellent. Now, where, where should we go next? I want to I want to talk about men's shed and particularly uh, sheds and... Sheds, sheds and the Brits, because I think the Brits are probably more than any country in the world, more than any people in the world, obsessed with sheds. Very I can't, I can't get to the bottom of this. They're, they're, sh yeah, they're shedaholics. Uh, <laughs> and a, a, apparently, about two thirds of Brits own a shed. Can you believe that? Like two thirds of Brits. That's that's a that's millions of people. And demand for sheds over lockdown is quite has been quite incredible. Um, my own shed. Um, we had to wait about six months in order to get it because I think there has been so much pent up demand for sheds because people are now starting to you know, increasingly work from home, which connects us to what we were talking about earlier on. And people actually want to be able to, you know, have somewhere out of the house that they're that they're working in. We hear somebody like David Cameron, you know, uh, purchased a shepherd's hut 
for about £25,000 in order to write his memoirs in the bottom of his of his garden. J.K. Rowling is another person who has spent a lot of money on a sort of little writing retreat in her own in her own garden. Um, but what is it, Sam, that you think that makes Brits so obsessed with sheds? Uh, you know, not wanting to be in their own house. <laughs> maybe it's not wanting to be in their own house. Maybe it's connected to gardening maybe it's connected to the, their obsession with with their with their their own gardens but if you compare it to america for example the united states very few houses would have had garden sheds it may be connected to the fact that actually we have much smaller dwellings and so not enough storage space to put things mm. you know compared with with america where properties are much larger and so we need we need these kinds of sheds um but one of the things that i think is is really interesting to think about is the way in which sheds over time have become a very much a male domain and if you think about the practical sides of sheds a lot of the things that we've associated sheds with other than writing you know, are concerned with with work. So they are places to keep tools. They're places to keep garden equipment. They're places to keep, you know, bicycles or whatever. Um, they're places where you might use a sort of little workshops. All of these things are really associated with men throughout history. And so the shed has become very much a male domain my grandfather you know had a had an allotment and a, and a shed down there and the shed for him was was really a place to retreat to a place to you know go and sit and contemplate and connected not only to the allotment and getting outdoors and gardening but also to to leisure and to sociability and this connects to um something that um grew up in the 1980s in Australia, which is this phenomenon of men's shed. And this is something that we've seen still going very strong today. There's a society connected to it. You can check them out uh, online. You can get involved. There's something called the Australia Men's Sheds Association, the AMSA. And these were men's sheds or community sheds. They are non-profit, local, charitable organisations. Very fluid, but the idea is to get men together to interact socially, to be involved in craft work or handiwork. Um, and the whole initial intention in the 80s was basically to deal with what they saw as really structural problems with men's health and well-being. Uh, men who older generation of men in in Australia, so it was bringing them together, um, you know, um, and getting them together to socialise, to work together, and there are over nine hundred of these organisations now across uh, Australia, with you know hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of members. And the idea is that is basically to get men interacting with each other in a way that that men would not sort of necessarily talk face to face, but actually through some kind of manly activity, you know, they would they would talk shoulder to shoulder. So by working side by side, they'd be able to 
you know, socialise with each other, to share interests. And, you know, and this was a way of combating loneliness and isolation and an inability to sort of deal with 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 feelings and emotions and really sort of getting people out of the house and and getting involved um it's also connect sort of battling you know things like like dementia so there we are sam there's an example of um men's sheds for health and well-being in in modern australia mm, 1980s health it feels much more modern than the 80s isn't it it does, definitely. Yeah, it sounds like a like it's something that would be happening now, but that was, it was 40 years ago. Well done, Australia. Well done. Very impressive. Guys, I hope you've all enjoyed our history of sheds. I hugely enjoyed it. I'm going to go downstairs now and spend a little time in my shed thinking about what we're going to record next. Um, looking forward to that. We're doing the history of distance, aren't we, James? That's coming. We are doing the history of distance, as we are distance across the yeah. airwaves. Um. Absolutely. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, and we'll be with you again soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at James Dable, and the podcast is on at Unexpected Pod. Uh, you can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis, and if you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please check out my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. We are also all over social media. You can check us out on Instagram. You can check us out on Facebook. We also have a super-duper website that will tell you everything that we have been doing over the past few months uh, and past episodes check us out on historiesoftheunexpected.com and also if you have any pennies uh, to spare uh, think of us uh, about on patreon uh, we have a patreon page don't we sam absolutely and any, any help you can uh, offer there will allow us to record more episodes and to help people change the way they think about the past thanks guys bye bye